Welcome to the Books Talk podcast from Lincoln City Libraries. This program was recorded at the Bethany Branch Library on October 27, 2017. Jody from the Gear Branch Library discusses books from the shortlist for the Man Booker Prize. Good morning, everyone, and thank you for welcoming me to Bethany Library again. I love coming here. You have such a friendly book group, so you're always so welcoming. Every fall, I enjoy coming over and talking about the Man Booker Prize, and so I I brought three of the books that are on the six-book shortlist, and I have a couple others I can talk about, and there should be enough handouts for everyone that Carrie brought over so that people can see all 12 books that made the long list this year, and also one that's on the flyer is actually the winner of the International Man Booker Prize, so it's a separate category. And I will let you know that there is some confusion on the year for Man Booker because when you look it up, sometimes what we're discussing today is called the 2017 Man Booker Prizes or International Man Booker Prizes, and sometimes they're referred to as the 2018, and sometimes you'll see both years on the same site. So I'm just calling them the 2017, but you will see sometimes the the same list of books sometimes called the 2018 or the coming year. So the winner this year was just selected last week, and it is Lincoln in the Bardo by George Saunders. Has anyone read it? Okay, well, I will try to do it justice as I as I discuss it. This is the second year in a row that American an American author has won. And in fact, there were three American authors who made it to the short list. And another um, who is described as being the one who got away, which is the Underground Railroad. And I'll discuss that a little bit more. But people were very surprised that it did not make it from the long list to the to the short list. So Lincoln and the Bardo is based a lot on the idea of the Bardo, and that's a a Tibetan Buddhist name for almost kind of a purgatory. That's the transition period between death and rebirth. And so this is talking about 24 hours that take place from the time Lincoln and his wife had their 11-year-old son, Willie, interred temporarily in a friend's crypt. Uh, Willie was eventually moved into a grave with, at, at the same site with his parents and his siblings. But at this time, he was put into a crypt, and this describes the first 24 hours from that happening. So it is not a traditional narrative style. It's little snippets um, that, are, that come from actual sources, actual um, newspaper or magazine or book sources intermingled with some snippets that the author made up. And you don't really know which is which, although you have a fairly safe presumption that the ones that come from the ghosts in the in the graveyard that night perhaps might be among those that he made up so um (laughs) but there could be others among those that he made up that seem to be legit so it's left up to the reader's imagination as all part of the story so after his son's body was interred at the crypt at oak hill cemetery and that's in georgetown 
several times from the points of view from Willie himself, who's new there, to other ghosts or spirits who have been there longer. You get an idea of the cemetery itself. You get an idea of the community they just left before they departed their life. Uh, There's a vast array of ghosts that describe what their lives had been like before they were ended and they keep talking about at that point when they were put in the sick box and it takes the reader a while to catch on that the sick box is a coffin so most of them are unaware that they are dead and they're talking about when they'll get to return to their lives or wanting to get a message to someone that I'm all right don't worry about me to their daughters there is some vulgarity both in the language and both in the situations of things that the those ghosts are describing about their their past lives their longings their their desires and so it it's probably not for the faint of heart Um, there's some violence there's some graphic sexual scenes but there i i'm very glad that i read it it because it it described lincoln's sorrow his personal sorrow at losing willie so beautifully when you get to see through the eyes of Abraham Lincoln and the author mixed that in with Lincoln's sorrow for the country at that time during the Civil War and all of the personal grieving that he knew other families were were experiencing because of losing sons or husbands or fathers so or friends there was one quote that I wanted to share from you this book and it comes from one of the ghosts I'll just go straight into it. And there was nothing left for me to do but go, though the things of the world were strong with me still, such as, for example, a gaggle of children trudging through a side-blown December flurry, a friendly mat share beneath some collision-tilted streetlight, a frozen clock, bird visited within its high tower, cold water from a tin jug, toweling off one's clinging shirt post-June rain. Pearls, rags, buttons, rug tuft, beer froth. Someone's kind wishes for you. Someone remembering to write. Someone noticing that you are not at all at ease. A bloody roast death red on a platter. A hedge top underhand as you flee late to some chalk and wood fire smelling schoolhouse. Geese above, clover below. The sound of one's own breath when winded. The way a moistness in the eye will blur a field of stars. The sore place on the shoulder a resting toboggan makes. Writing one's beloved's name upon a frosted window with a gloved finger. Tying a shoe, tying a knot on a package. A mouth on yours, a hand on yours. The ending of the day, the beginning of the day. The feeling that there will always be a day ahead. And that was from page 335 of the book. It struck me as... I would miss those things if I was at a point where I hadn't gone on to where my eternal place is, um, but I was missing my my walking around the earth, being alive. Those are those are certainly things I would miss from all five senses. So I'm glad that you enjoyed them as I did. The different voices paint a picture of community, and it reminded me of our town by Thornton Wilder. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it, that came to mind. And it also reminded me of Spoon, Spoon River, River. Yeah. Winesburg, Ohio. So at the time, it w- again was written during, or written to be taking place during the Civil War. So the voices of slaves 
came from a different side of the fence and the fence affected them differently and how it limited them from being able to approach. But Willie talked about wanting to stay where he was and wait for his father in the book. Lincoln came to the crypt after everyone had left for the services and unlocked the crypt and pulled out the coffin and lifted Willie out and held him and cried and talked to Willie. And so Willie's ghost was not wanting to leave the bardo because he wanted to wait for his father to come back and get him. And the, the community came together as a way of trying to have Willie understand that his father did not want him to wait there indefinitely, that he wanted him to go on and be free in his next life. So it was a memorable book. It's one that has stayed with me since reading it. The next book that I read was also by an American author and is called History of Wolves. It's by Emily Fridland. And this is a coming of age novel, but typical of all of the man booker books that I've read from this year and last year, it's not a real cheery one. I would describe this as raw. <laughs> In fact, I tried to do a quick search to see what is the criteria when they're selecting. And through a quick search, I wasn't able to find the criteria for the books themselves. I found the criteria for selecting judges, and I'll, I'll tell you in a moment about who the judges were this year. Um, so the criteria might or might not be opened for the public to, to view. I'm not sure. So I will continue out of my own curiosity to try, try harder to find out more about that. There's no romance in this coming-of-age novel. There's not a, a perky spin on making it all tie together nicely for things to be happy. I would compare this to some of you might have read the book Winterbone or seen the movie Winterbone. Um, it played downtown at the Ross, and I, I enjoyed the movie. It had the same feeling as this book. This book talks about Linda, who's a 14-year-old narrator, and she's living a very Spartan life in Minnesota. And you feel the cold, and you feel um, the the breaking the ice and what it could be like to feel that water in the under the frozen ice. And you'll want to wrap up in quilts while you're reading this one. <laughs> she was raised by, well, in, the, in her early life, she was raised by a commune. And everyone else in the commune has left except for her mother, her father, and herself. But she never really has that, that connect with her mother of of a mother who chose a name for her. They chose her name by having everyone in the commune put a suggestion into a pot and they drew names. And she kind of misses that, that close connection that she feels like other people have with their parents. Um, she does have that with her, with her father to some degree, but never really, and she's always searching for that with her mother. People at the school, people in the community see her as strange and an outsider because of how her parents continue to live. She lives in the forest. It's a long, cold walk for her to get home from school. And she's shunned by a lot of people who see her coming from a strange family in their viewpoint. And at the beginning of the book, her first connection is with a teacher who is not there long. Uh, the teacher sees something in her 
and ask her to represent the school in a in like an advanced placement history exhibition and allows her to choose whatever subject she wants maybe she wants to talk about the colonies or maybe she wants to talk about something that happened in more recent years in America and she chose the history of wolves and the teacher thought it was not really fitting the topic but allowed her to proceed and I believe that there was some symbolism in her being a lone wolf herself and selecting the the history of wolves and throughout the book when it's when she's speaking as an adult and flashing back to her life she keeps telling people I can tell you anything you want to know about wolves so I think it touches base with her always feeling alone not being a part of the group the closest thing she comes to having a group is when a little boy named Paul and his mother Petra move across the lake. The dad isn't there for most of the time because he is living in Hawaii doing research on stars. And Linda connects with this young boy and the mother who's basically a single mother doing everything by herself and she becomes kind of a nanny surrogate in the family and she is really excited to have this linked to a family from the second page she talks about Paul the young boy and said this is really the first time I've ever known anyone except for one teacher who had been at the school who's died so you know there's a tragedy laying ahead and there is she's very close with Paul she's very close with Petra and through through her discussing her concerns she she doesn't trust the father at all and when he comes to visit it is not because the little boy is sick but linda's very aware the little boy is sick and this this hurts the family this hurts the mother and the father when she explains oh is paul still not feeling well and they shush her and say don't say that he's fine there is an element of the book where because of their beliefs as Christian scientists, they don't want her to mention anything about him being sick. They don't believe in any kind of medical intervention or um, medical diagnostics. And there's some blame that they place on Linda for believing he's sick because that could cause him further decline. And so her, her efforts of, can I go get some Tylenol? Can I call a doctor? Can I do something? Are met with resistance. The author makes wonderful connections with words. One, things I, one thing I really liked that the author did is she used verbs in ways that made them into nouns. And they aren't traditionally nouns. And, and the reverse, she used nouns and described them in verb-like ways. And and the description was beautiful and she would also repeat a key word later on in the page in a different way so you felt like there was a flow and the flow kind of followed some of the flow she described on the waves of the lake and and so that was beautiful uh, and she would use the words in different meanings the next time she brought them around there's a backstory of Linda kissing this teacher who hadn't been there long and who allowed her to enter the exhibition and then she followed closely another female student who described things, created rumors about herself and this teacher that no one knew if they were true or not true, but this, this young woman describing them and creating the rumors that involved herself, she became shunned. And Linda was able to, to empathize with that shunning and understand that. So she kind of followed the student too, and as an adult, 
touch base with with the teacher through letters. If you like the story or if you liked Winter's Bone, there is another book that's brand new. It's not a part of the Man Booker Prize list, but I thought I would mention it. There's a brand new book that came out called My Absolute Darling, and it's by Gabriel, I think it's pronounced Talent, T-A-L-L-E-N-T. Now, there's abuse in that book that's horrific, but he kind of has the same style of writing, the beautiful writing. Just as a side note, I had checked that book out before it was even in the library from Barnes & Noble, which is my other job. And on the night of the first football game, my husband and our exchange daughter were at my mom's walk, watching the football game, and there was a wind and a chill in the air, and my two sons were keeping themselves busy. And so I went to the whole effect, turned on the stained glass lamps, and I wrapped up in a quilt and had some hot apple cider, and I sat down and started reading that book, and it was so beautiful. And sometimes you feel like, oh, you're so excited. And I got to the end of the first chapter, and I realized there was going to be abuse in this, this book I mentioned, My Absolute Darling. And I, I actually said aloud to an empty room, no, no, no. <laughs> what gives the author the right to interfere with my plans for this book? So anyway, <laughs> I did finish it. And I was very glad that 13-year-old in that story um, is almost a 13-year-old Lisbeth Salander from the, the uh, Millennial Trilogy. She can navigate the northern coast of California the way that Linda in this book can navigate the Minnesota shoreline. And so, yeah, it's just another one I thought I'd mention and recommend. And as the third one by an American author, 4321 by Paul Oster. I do not have with me because it is very difficult to get a hold of it, but I can tell you a few things about it. One thing about the Man Booker Prize is since it's an international prize, it's a frequent occurrence that we might not have access in the United States to all of the books yet. But 4321 um, is a book that follows the, the narrator through four different lives. He graduates from high school, he becomes an adult, he falls in love, but it's a commentary on chance, a book of chance. In fact, it reminds me through the descriptions of Robert Frost's poem of The Road Less Taken, Less Traveled, because the, the fourth life that this narrator lives, he comments on what a shame it is that we can only live on one timeline at a time when we miss so many different opportunities because of decisions we've made along the way. So it's a narrator whose parents had immigrated to the United States and he grows up living in in poverty and um, has to find his own Horatio Alger paths to, to build something of his life. So I would like to tell you more about them, but, but all I can really tell you about that book is you can look for it in December. It's described as a masterpiece, and I had the impression that it's going to be a very long book. So, Well, is that four different lives or four different sections of his life? They are four different lives. It follows the same sections from what I've heard. Okay. So, yes. There is another book. Let's see. Autumn. 
Autumn by Allie Smith, and I can pass that one around. Autumn is an interesting one because um, the author was in a hurry to publish this so that she would have, so that it would be the first pro post Brexit novel oh, oh. published. And so there's a lot of reference inside the book to being post EU. And she describes a lot of the things that were kind of a year behind in experiencing. So I'll give you some examples of that. At the beginning of the book, I wasn't sure what I was going to think of it, but by the end, I really enjoyed it. It's only the first book in a four-part series that she is planning on writing, and she wants each one to be named after a season. So just following the EU referendum, it explores what time is and how we experience it. It kind of follows the experience of time that, that a philosopher, Henry Bergson, described as la durée, la durée, or duration, as in time flies when you're having fun. So there are two different narrators in there. It starts with Daniel Gluck. And Daniel Gluck, you aren't sure if he is, if he has died or if possibly he's in a coma. He's in that box. <laughs> yes, I know. There's a lot of reference that kind of intertwine among these. Exactly. So he describes being in a place where he assumes he's died and he's kind of disappointed to realize that he still looks as old as he was when he expired. And um, that changes over experience over a short period of time. He's like, well, I am starting to look a little younger. So, um, and he sees other people along this beach and he's able to do things he had never known how to do in life. For instance, sewing together the leaves to cover up his nakedness that he's embarrassed about. So he's like, well, this is kind of cool. I can do things I had never learned before. But then you realize after that short segment that the, the main narrator is going to be Elizabeth. And Elizabeth is spending a lot of time visiting Daniel Gluck, who had been a friend of hers, a much older friend of hers. And he is lying in a bed, unresponsive, but she believes that he can, he can hear her and the nurses around. And she's reading to him. Well, at first reading next to him from Brave New World. And after the nurses comment on how much it must mean to him that she's reading to him, she switches to reading to him. She first met him when she was eight years old, and he was a neighbor, and she had an assignment to interview a neighbor. Her, her mother would not allow her to do so. No, he's kind of a funny guy, and I don't want you to talk to him, so I want you to make up the interview for this assignment. And if the school calls and asks me about it, I'm going to back up that you did not make it up and that it's real, and I'm going to get mad at the school for even asking. So um, that was kind of her introduction to, to the neighbor. Um, she was humiliated when she received the paper back, and her mom was holding it over the fence line, telling this neighbor, would you like to read a paper that my daughter wrote about you? It was an uncomfortable situation for her. So she, her mom is a character in a lot of different ways. And so she became friends with this, this neighbor who made some references to some really interesting things, meeting Bob Dylan, co-writing a song, describing some 
amazing sounding art that she had never heard of or seen before and most people had never seen of or heard of before. Bob Dylan spending the night on the floor of a friend's home. So he had he was very encouraging to, to her when she was young. They spent a lot of time together. And then after she moved away and earned her master's in art history, she came back and, and found out some more ties to Daniel Gluck's life. Daniel Gluck's mother was described in 1943 when she and some other women were rounded up in the south of France onto a truck. You have the strong impression that they were going to be taken to a concentration camp. And the mother describes that since it was 19... I, actually, I might have been wrong. It might have not been 1943. It might have been 1941. Apologize for that. But she describes that they probably would not have survived, but at that point in that area, it was still out of the norm for people in the community to see people rounded up and placed on a, on a truck. And so their curiosity was a, a lifesaver. One, one woman came up to the truck and asked, what are you doing with those women? And a Nazi shoulder, soldier pushed the woman and she fell and hit her head. And you don't know if the woman survived or not, but it, it opened a, an opportunity for Daniel Gluck's mother to say, and this is my stop and get off of the truck. And um, there might be no Daniel Gluck if that had not happened. So anyway, there there was some implication that perhaps with some of those comments of this was still normal at the point, people weren't um, accepting this as normal yet, that Elizabeth and her mother were kind of experiencing at this time post-Brexit. For instance, that for instance, they took a short walk and found a fence that was only a couple of blocks from their home and the fence had barbing at the top razor wire and was electric and the second time that they experienced it Elizabeth was chased off or someone tried to chase off chase her off saying you're not allowed near this fence and she's like well why would it hurt anything what could I possibly be doing wrong and no one had any answers except to get on the radio and report her and no one had any answers for her about what that would mean when she was reported but the first time they experienced it her mother sat down and described being tired of the changes and being fearful and there was one quote from this book that I'd love to share with you if that's okay pages 59 and 61 are describing the division in the country because of the current politics. So just before that, on pages 56 and 57, is when it's describing her and her mother coming across this fence. Her mother sat down and said, I'm tired of the news. I'm tired of the way it makes things spectacular that aren't and deals so simplistically with what's truly appalling. I'm tired of the vitriol. I'm tired of the anger. I'm tired of the meanness. I'm tired of the selfishness. I'm tired of how we're doing nothing to stop it. I'm tired of how we're encouraging it. I'm tired of the violence there is. And I'm tired of the violence that's on its way, that's coming, and that hasn't happened yet. I'm tired of liars. I'm tired of sanctified liars. I'm tired of how those liars have let this happen. I'm tired of having to wonder whether they did it out of stupidity or did it on purpose. I'm tired of lying governments. 
I'm tired of people not caring whether they're being lied to anymore. I'm tired of being made to feel this fearful. I'm tired of animosity. I'm tired of, and at this point she interjects a word that Elizabeth tells her mom, that's not a word, mom. I'm tired of pulsolanonymosity. <laughs> and when she was corrected about that not being a word, I'm tired of not knowing the right words, her mother said. So it had some humor, too, when Elizabeth was required to go in and get a new passport. And she had to take a number at one point when no one else was in the post office. And she had to sit and wait and wait and wait because the number she pulled was several numbers down the road from the number currently serving. Um, And then when she would get up there, they would say, we can't accept this because your picture is one milligram or one one millimeter too tiny. And so they sent her somewhere to get more pictures. And she came back and said, okay, I measured the picture. So I know it's right. Okay, we can't process this because there's something wrong with your eyes. Your eyes are too small. And so it kind of made some commentary on the bureaucracy as well. And then every time she would need to go visit her friend Daniel Gluck, she would be told, oh, your passport has expired. And she'd say, I know. (laughs) So... There was that element as well. That was the book Autumn by Allie Smith, and I'm looking forward to the other three books in the series, too. I wonder if she'll be in the same hurry to write the other three that, so that they're so current. I'm just I'm looking forward very much to the next of them. I thought the same thing. She mentions some of our current leaders in the United States in the book. And I, I think that we were maybe one year behind some of the things she was describing in this book. The, the focus on there being a fence or a wall. So some of it was very familiar to me. There's one other quote from this, from Autumn. I apologize. It is like democracy is a bottle someone can threaten to smash and do a bit of damage with. It has become a time of people saying stuff to each other and none of it actually ever becoming dialogue. That was kind of a key quote, too. Which leaves two other books I wanted to mention to you that I was reading before they even announced the shortlist to try and get a jump on reading through the shortlist, and they did not make the shortlist, and I was surprised. One of them was by Zadie Smith, and it's her new one, Swing Time. The narrator is never named in swing time and I think that was making a key point uh, that the author wanted to make kind of about her trying to find out who she is the narrator is a biracial young woman who has a white father and a black mother and she lives in England and then she becomes friends with Tracy who lives in the same complex Tracy lives in a less desirable apartment though is struggling more for money and Tracy's mom is white and her dad is black and Tracy's dad is largely absent so she's mainly raised by uh, not overprotective just the opposite a mother who's more permissive but wants to make sure that her daughter gets noticed in the dance world so our narrator and Tracy are in dance classes together they're in school together they're best friends they identify as what they refer to as the only brown girls in their school and 
the amount of permissiveness and, and strictness among their mothers takes them on different routes, kind of heads them in different directions toward their adult life. In the narrator's adult life, she becomes an assistant to a pop icon who is popular around the world and as we've all been taught that a lot of times if something seems too good to be true, it usually is. Our narrator finds that out in her job that she keeps through, I think it was seven unheard of years with this pop icon that she worked for. If you've ever seen the movie or read the book, The Devil Wears Prada, it kind of reminded me of how she was at this pop icon's beck and call um, 24-7, and some of the tasks she needed to go on for her were kind of ridiculous. This pop icon decided that she wanted to travel to Africa, and she wanted to open a school. And so through her travels to Africa and sending the narrator there first to lay the groundwork, the narrator was in an uncomfortable position to realize some of the self-aggrandizing that was behind the pop icon's motivation for doing this. Some of it was publicity for herself. Some of it was an ego for herself. Anyway, it was an uncomfortable position for the narrator, and there were times that her past life, being friends with Tracy, kind of cycled through how she felt like she was left out on the side and as her adult life. She reaches a point when she gets fired overnight from this pop icon and all of this instant credit to anything that she would need and being driven around by limousines ended overnight and she found herself not even having a place to live or a place to take her belongings. And so she she was again trying to find out who she was. The whole book is full of flashbacks. I would say at some times it was kind of confusing to figure out which time setting of the author's life you were in and where she was at in her relationship with, with each of her parents because of those different time settings. I really enjoyed it. It was the first Zadie Smith that I've read and I've been wanting to read her for a long time so based on this book I'll I'll be reading more of her but again it did not make it to the short list um, and I did listen to this one on CD and it was one that I could recommend listening listening I thought the narrator that they had do the voice of it was was phenomenal and the last book I wanted to mention, and I saved it for last because it's being called The One That Got Away on the shortlist for the Man Booker this year. Everyone was shocked that the Underground Railroad by, is it Whitehead? Colston yes. Whitehead did not make it. Um, it's another author from the United States. It's a brutal book about how people treated people during the time of slavery Cora was the narrator, and you see Cora and other people uh, who were slaves escape slavery in ways, or, or be some people who are on different plantations earn their freedom or be given their freedom only to be kidnapped by a slave catcher or through different circumstances be brought back into slavery again and again and again and it rips your heart out to 
to see the hope to have such high hopes that someone was never going to be treated with such brutality again and to see it repeated within their lives so many times and he also um, had a change of the underground railroad itself instead of being a metaphor of being an actual railroad so you would see trains of anything from sometimes a handcart or a push cart um, that would come through a station to sometimes an actual train that would go through so that was a part of the author's imagination that he added in but it was called the the one that got away and so I would have felt remiss if I didn't mention that during our book talk of the the short list I had promised you that I would tell you about who the judges were this year and that's because of you guys because you have such incredible questions someone asked the last time and I said I do not know and so I found out this time that there was one chair and four people who were discussing it it was chaired by Baroness Lola Young and she has an honorary doctorate from Middlesex University. She's done a lot of work through Middlesex University as well. Um, she has a lot of experience as being a chair. She chaired the Orange Prize for Fiction, and she chaired the Kane Prize for African Writing, which will be another prize that I follow from here. Besides her chairing it, the members were Lila Azam Zangane, and she's a literary critic. There was Sarah Hall who is an author. She's an author who's been shortlisted for the Booker list herself in 2004 with her novel The Electric Michelangelo and longlisted more recently in 2009 with How to Paint a Dead Man. So there's a literary critic, an author, an artist. The artist was Tom Phillips and a travel writer. And the travel writer is Colin Thubrin. And he writes mainly about travel in Russia, China, and Central Asia. He's the current president of the Royal Society of Literature, and his most recent book is Night of Fire, which is being called a masterpiece. So that's another one I'll be looking at, Night of Fire. So five people? So yes, yes, five people. five people, including the chair. I'll just throw one additional comment for those who are used to using our book guide resources on the library's website. On our award winners page, we do have a Man Booker Prize page that lists all of the past winners with hot links into our collection. And I was just checking it, and we have about 90% of them. So. Awesome. Thank you so much. We hope you have enjoyed this podcast from Lincoln City Libraries. If you would like to comment on this or any of our podcasts, you can do so by visiting our podcast page at lincolnlibraries.org slash podcasts, where you can also download our podcasting theme music for use as your ringtone. You can become a fan of our podcast by searching for Lincoln City Libraries Podcasts on Facebook. Mm-hmm.